Welcome those listening by way of radio and television. I invite you to turn uh, with us as we study the Word of God this morning to the, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2 and verse 36. There are several familiar characters and people, personalities, and unfamiliar ones that we love to remind ourselves of, of, of that have part in the Christmas story, what we refer to as the birth and the coming of our Lord, to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read there beginning in Matthew, Luke chapter 2 and beginning there in verse 32, the record here of a lady we'd like to look at and study her life. Excuse me, Luke chapter 2 and verse 36. And there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. She had been married seven years before her husband died. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem." When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus for the purification rites described in Leviticus 12, they're acting in accordance to the scripture and did everything in accordance to the Old Testament prescription. And they were fulfilling the requirements of purification in Leviticus chapter 12. And this took place 40 days after the birth of a son. And we see that in verses 22 through 24. We're going to look at that this morning in the service. But we're looking at Anna's life now, but just giving the background information of why Anna is here and why Mary and Joseph are at the temple. Since he was Mary's firstborn son, according to the law of Moses, he had to be redeemed. Is that not an interesting concept? Exodus 13 verse 1 tells us, And the Lord said, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn." Whosoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, there was to be no exception. There were to be sanctified, the firstborn, unto the Lord. Both man and beast, it is mine, the scripture says. Well, when the Lord says something is mine, we better take note of it and follow his instruction. Mary and Joseph would have had to pay five shekels to redeem him, the redemption price. They would bring with them to the temple what a paradox. I'm sure you see it when I said that Mary and Joseph had to redeem Jesus. Someone will say, well, Brother Lamb, I thought you said that Jesus, and you've taught that he was perfect, sinless, without sin. And that's certainly true. And that's where the paradox comes, the, the seeming contradiction. The Redeemer being redeemed. One day he would give an infinitely more than five shekels to redeem us. May we never forget wherever we're studying in the scriptures, what our redemption cost. Peter tells us so clearly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times to you. And so our redemption was nothing less than the, the life and the blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, verse 24 tells us that they brought a pair of turtle doves or pigeons, which signifies that they were quite poor. Many of the people would bring a lamb. They would bring uh, other things that were prescribed by the, the, the scripture. But if they could not afford those uh, sacrifices, the cheapest of the sacrifices would be the two turtle doves. Again, I cannot help but think he who is the Lamb of God, his parents, earthly parents, could not even afford a lamb to bring at his purification. They could not afford to bring the expected lamb, but brought the, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. They were sanctifying the, the Son, their Son, and the rep- all those sacrifices, all those little lambs that all those parents had offered throughout the hundreds and thousands of years all symbolize this lamb, this baby that Mary and Joseph were bringing. You see how our Lord fulfilled every part of the Old Testament law's requirements. Galatians 4, 4 tells us that he was born under the law, under all the precepts and the, uh, the reaching of the law. And while he rejected the traditions of the rabbis, the rabbinical uh, teachings that added to and were their own ideas about what the scripture said, he, while he rejected that, that which they had placed on the same level as the law itself, he carefully obeyed and fulfilled perfectly God's law as revealed under, unto Moses. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, the soul that sinneth it shall die, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Galatians 5.1 tells us that he has set us free from the bondage that we were under and to stand fast in the liberty that, that Christ has, wherewith he has set us and made us free. Simeon and Anna, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, were part of a faithful remnant that, that were eagerly awaiting the, the coming of the Messiah. They were just a handful. There were not many in all of Israel who got it, who believed the scriptures to the point that they were eagerly expecting and awaiting for the Lord to come. And I'd ask you this morning, we may say, oh, what a shame. Why weren't they looking for the Savior? Are you looking for him? We have just as many prophecies pointing to his coming again as they did to his first coming. While we should have woken up this morning and looked out the window and see if the eastern sky was ablaze, he's coming again. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And we have all those precious scriptures that says Jesus Christ will come. We long for him to rule and reign even as they did. And we know this time when he comes, it will set in motion all the the events that will lead to the worldwide and eternal reign of Jesus Christ. We see here in in Luke chapter 2 in verse uh, uh, 36 where Anna came to the temple. Well, she was there. She went there every day. And so this remnant, Simeon, Anna, those here and there who are looking for the coming of the Messiah, that they were looking for him. This teaches us that no matter how ungodly the world is around us, we can live a godly and obedient life. We can live a holy life. We can believe the word of God and live by it and expect him to fulfill his promises to us. We ourselves can be set apart for the Lord's use and for his uh, honoring glory. And in fact, you've signified that this morning by gathering in his name and obedience to his word, uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, uh, offering the sacrifices of prayer and praise as we blend our voices and hearts together. Th- there's always been a believing remnant 
and Anna was part of the remnant of that day. Just a few, just a very few. Simeon was a man led by the Spirit of God, taught by the Word of God, obedient to do the will of God, and he was therefore privileged to see the salvation of God. Have you noticed, if you study the Scriptures, one thing that you'll see, you'll see a recurring theme. You'll see this phrase recurring, in the fullness of time. That's, that's a, a phrase that you see throughout the Scripture, in the fullness of, of time. And what that is saying at God's exact time, do you know that everything happens on, on God's calendar exactly as he's a plan, he planned it for it to take place at the exact moment in, in history that he has ordained it to take place? What a glorious thought that is. And while the disciples asked the Lord Jesus, are you about to set up your kingdom just as he was about to ascend into heaven? He said that time and those times are not for you to know. The Father knows it. And so he already has it, in my thinking, already on his calendar. In the eternal purpose of God, the exact second when Jesus will come again. He's coming. You know, that's the message of Christmas is not only that he already has come, but he's coming again. The message of Christmas does not end in a manger or even at the purification that we're looking here in Luke chapter 2. But the story goes all the way to Calvary, doesn't it? Into an empty tomb and to the Mount of Olives where we, the disciples were looking steadfastly into heaven. And what did the angels say? Why are you staring into heaven? This same Jesus that you've seen go into heaven will come in like manner. Just like he left, he'll come in great clouds of glory. He was received up out of their sight in clouds, and he will come again. God's timing is always perfect. I wouldn't be a a bit surprised. I'm not a date setter. I don't think we have any authority to do that whatsoever. I know that every generation since Jesus ascended thought they were the generation where he'd come again. Paul wrote as if he he would not die. We which are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet them in the air. He put himself in the rapture group every time he, he, he mentioned it, that, that they would be part of it. Well, all of God's true believing people have thought that he would come again in their day. I do believe, however, and I say this as I study the scriptures and, and look around, that we are the terminal generation. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. You realize that the ancient rabbis I was reading Dr. John Gill, that renowned Puritan preacher who taught himself Hebrew and Greek and could speak it and write it, write it as his own native English language. He read all the ancient rabbinical writers who taught that in the seventh millennium, Messiah would come. Well, I believe that we're in the seventh millennium, and I believe that this could be the millennium that the Lord Jesus comes back. But if he tarries for another seven millennia, uh, that's his business. But we're to to look for his coming and to purify ourselves with this blessed hope. Well, verse 38 tells us, and she coming in that instant. You see how exact God's timing is? We often say, well, I just happened to be here and I saw so-and-so. It it was an accident or just, you know, by fate. Oh, no, no. In that exact instant. Well, I want us to look at Anna this morning in her life, and hopefully it will be a, a blessing to us as we glean from these the, uh, three verses uh, a, a life well lived. And it reminds us of the, the, when that, the phrase there, I, in that exact instant, she just came across the temple, the courtyard of women, the moment that Simeon was holding up the baby Jesus, saying, my eyes have seen salvation, Anna saw it. Now, that's of the Lord, isn't it? 
She came every day with that expectancy, but she came on this day at the exact instant that this young this couple came and brought their son to be dedicated to the Lord. It reminds us of Abraham's servant as we looked at, I being in the way, the Lord led me. If we're in the Lord's will at his appointing, then God will bless and lead and guide and these kinds of things will come to pass. One thing we see here from these verses is that Anna was an old woman. The scripture tells us that she was of great age. And while it does not tell us specifically the number of years, we can surmise about how old she was. Now, some may disagree with my mathematics here, but let's just do some consideration here for a moment, okay? She had been a widow for 84 years, in, in my understanding of the scripture. The scripture says that she had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. So from the, she was a virgin when she married, and whatever age that was, it might have been 16, it might have been 20. But, and then she was a widow for uh, 84 years after her husband died. So if you add that, uh, just 84 and 7 is 91, okay? Is that so right together so far? Even if she'd gotten married as a teen, she'd be over 100 years old. And uh, this didn't stop her from coming to the temple every day expecting to see the Messiah. She was a woman who had grown old loving the Lord with all of her heart, with all of her soul, with all of her mind and strength. The Bible tells us here that she was from the tribe of Asher. You'll remember that the tribe of Asher was the least important of all the tribes, if you want to rank them that way. I hate to rank the tribes like we would the National Football League's ranking or the, or the college rankings, but if you're ranking the tribes, humanly speaking, remember he had sprung from the son of Jacob and Leah's maid, Zilpah. Leah was the unwanted wife, and Zilpah was the unwanted slave of the unwanted wife. So if you look at it, the tribe of Asher was the least of the tribes as far as their ranking. Asher was the least and the last of the four slave-born sons of Jacob and one of the tribes taken into captivity into Assyria. But Asher had never let his low status in humans' eyes affect him. And so I want you to know, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, what socioeconomic situation you may be in today, what your parentage is, whether you know of your parentage. You may be an orphan. You may have come from uh, uh, what, what the general public would say low circumstances or poor circumstances or from a bad background, however you want to describe that. That makes no difference whatsoever in the realm of grace, in the church of the Lord, in, in the, in the, among the body of Christ. For one thing, Asher's name, do you know what his name means? Happy. Now, someone may say, well, Brother Lamb, if he was the least of the tribes of the unwanted maid, of the unwanted wife of Jacob, what did he have to be happy about? He was, we could see the tribe of Judah or uh, one of the other tribes, the tribe of Levi, uh, uh, carrying the furniture and all the, the, the things of the Lord. But Asher, well, he made up for his lot in life by a joyful, cheerful attitude. And while we're not talking about just po the power of positive thinking here, it is true, someone has said that life is just 10% of what actually happens to you and 90% of how you respond to it, your attitude, how you take it. And all of us will have things happen to us in life, things that we rather would not have happened, 
things that we would categorize as horrible, unthinkable, and yet we know, if we know the scriptures, the Bible promises that all things work together for good to them who love the Lord. You might not see it in this lifetime, but when you stand before him complete, glorified in heaven, you'll say, oh, that's what that was for. That's why the Lord allowed that. That's why I was born here, or this happened here, or all the circumstances that came apart of the tapestry of God's grace in our life. Those dark threads, when we look at it from, the, from heaven's perspective, it'll be a beautiful portrait of God's grace. My grandmother did needlepoint, and I've often looked at needlepoint. I appreciate pettypoint, needlepoint. She did tatting, all kinds of that handwork that you, don't, you rarely see anymore. The, the, the pettypoint and the, the needlework, if you looked underneath it, it was colorful, but it didn't make much sense. But if you got up where she was looking, there was a pattern that she was going by. And you saw how all those threads worked together. And when she finished, some beautiful, beautiful pieces of embroidery and, and other work that she did. That The underside, not so much, but the top side from God's perspective, what a beautiful portrait it became. Well, we see that, that Asher was the happy tribe. Now, you can choose how you're going to, to look at life. We sometimes use um, euphemisms to look down upon that, a Pollyanna attitude, or looking at life through rose-colored glasses. But the child of God knows that all that we have is of grace, that, uh, that to be alive, that things are as well as they are with us right now is, is amazing, isn't it? And that, God, we don't deserve even to be alive today. All of us deserve to be in hell at this moment. Do you realize that? According to all the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And that's what all of us deserve. Anything else is the pure grace, the free grace of God. Well, just because someone comes from humble circumstances doesn't mean they can't be happy and cheerful. Uh, Godly Anna was born into the happy tribe, and she had two of the tribe's character traits. She was humble and she was happy. But Anna had another characteristic, and that was more important than the other first two, although I think all of them blended together make a wonderful, wonderful life. She was holy. She had grown old in godliness, as all of God's people should. Sometimes we look at older people and we wonder they may seem to be bitter about things that have happened to them in life. But it's not, there's no, no more precious, precious trophy on earth than an aged person sweetened by the events that God has brought in their life, and they have chosen to look at it from God's perspective by faith than from their perspective, which is very limited and finite, isn't it? And they've grown old, sweetly, trusting and living for the Lord. Well, you're going to be old one way or the other. You might as well be a trophy of God's grace and be sweet about it and ask the Lord to help sweeten us and to give us his graciousness as we age. Now, and, and godly Anna's name is forever linked with the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see in this snapshot that the Holy Spirit gives us here. She is the woman God allowed to see his son when he was a tiny infant, just a, a few days old, six or seven weeks old. She saw this infant who was totally dependent for every human need upon the ministry of another. Yet Anna had discernment enough to realize that the one on whom the worlds depended was the one that Mary was holding and that Simeon was lifting up there in the temple courtyard. The creator and sustainer of the, of the universe. The one who even when cradled in his mother's arms upheld all things by the word of his power. The Lord Jesus was probably circumcised when he was eight days old according to the, the law. 
probably on the last and the greatest uh, great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And after the appropriate length of time, Mary had now come to the temple with her humble gift and her, her child to offer the sacrifice demanded by law that a mother had to bring 40 days after the birth of a son or 80 days after the birth of a daughter, according to Leviticus chapter 12. The redemption price. A redemption price for a redeemer. How can it be? On this particular occasion, God allowed two people to hold his son in their arms. And that's notable, isn't it? One was a woman and the other was a man. These two were given this special privilege were Anna and Simeon. And we're going to look at Anna and notice several things about her this morning. The first thing I want us to notice about Anna was her victory. When, when you study people in the Bible, and God gives us living illustrations, humans, to, to show us what his word and his grace and his doctrine look like. And when studying people in the Bible, and very little is told about them, some things we have to use our imagination, we have to be careful of that. But we're going to look at Anna this morning, and we might call on ourselves to just think about some possibilities there. Her name, by the way, comes from the, the Hebrew Hannah. Anna is the same as Hannah, and it means grace. So we can learn a lot by that. There was, in the Bible times, every name had, was just, uh, filled with meaning. And Anna knew grace. She showed much spiritual grace. And here we see at once that godly Anna was a woman who achieved victory over uh, bitterness that she could have had. She could have been very bitter about her lot in life. She could have been bitter about being a widow. Once she was young, no doubt had met Prince Charming. Her hopes were high. She had a husband, married and happy. And it seems as if she was married just seven years, a short, short marriage, and her husband died. She was a widow for all those years. No doubt she was in her late teens or early 20s, just a young lady. When the tragedy occurred, we're not sure if he died at work or fell from some precipice or come down from some illness or disease, but he died. It doesn't matter how he died, he's dead, and the home is empty, and this woman, young lady, is left. Uh, in that day and time, if she had no adult sons, which she probably did not, I'm only married seven years, if she did not have a brother or someone, a near kinsman, she was in dire circumstances. Anna could have been very bitter at the funeral. Why did you do this to me, Lord? I've been serving you. I love you. I believe your word. and You've taken my love from me, my husband. How am I going to live? What am I going to do? We could have, she could have blamed God for her sorrow and speak rashly and accuse him of cruelty. Satan gains a victory by distorting the picture of God. He always does, doesn't he? He came into the garden, told the first couple, well, look at what he's keeping from you. He doesn't want you to know all that you're going to know. No, God didn't want them to know what the fruit of that tree would bring them. What did, what did eating the fruit of that tree add to Adam and Eve's lot in life? Nothing. It absolutely stripped them of everything they loved and had. Oh, they had all kinds of knowledge. Knowledge of sin and lying and covering up and shame. It brought about death and the murder of their own sons. Oh, yes, they found out all kinds of stuff from eating of the fruit of that tree that God didn't want them to ever, ever know or experience. But it wasn't because he was being unfair or unloving. 
just as you parents want your children to be spared from every horrible thing imaginable. And so you have fences and, and alarms and all kinds of things. And, and watch carefully. That's not from out of cruelty or, or holding back from them. And so the forbidding to eat of the fruit, the fruit of that tree was only for their good. But Satan always twists that. He even did that when he tempted, tested the Lord Jesus Christ. Here you are. You're the son of God. Why, can't, why are you hungry? Why are you in a desert? You don't have a place to lay your head. You don't own anything. The, the, the king of kings and Lord, what are you the king of? I'll give you kingdoms. Turn these stones into bread if you're the son of God. Always questioning the, the fairness and the justice and the love of God. And he'll do that for you too. And when those thoughts come, remember those are thoughts from Satan because God's thoughts are only good toward you. They're only that he will have a desired end. He has a plan, a will for your life. And he's leading and guiding and withholding and disciplining and all those things it takes to sanctify us and to conform us to the image of his son. Oh, yes, that's what. And he's not going to spare any of that of what it will take to conform us to the image of his son. Now, you can get on Satan's side and say, this is not fair, uh, this is wrong, I ought not to be treated this way, I'm just as good as anybody else, why so-and-so get to have this? And I can, All those things that Satan brings through our mind, or you can bow before him and say, Lord, though you slay me, I will serve you. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, Anna Obviously, and again, we're using our imagination here, just looking at the snapshot that we have. Though her husband was taken for her, from her, it, what we would say at an untimely time, she did not let it make her bitter. You have a choice when tragedy comes. You can become bitter, and it will destroy you and eat you up and everybody else that's concerned around you. Bitterness does not stay. And one thing that you need to know about bitterness, you're perfectly free to nurse that and to keep that going on. It will not only destroy you like spiritual cancer, but it spills over into every person that you know and love. Bitterness, the Bible tells us, many are defiled by the root of bitterness in one person's life. Now, that's the truth. And I, I meet bitter people all the time. Well, this is not fair. I shouldn't be in this situation. And they nurse that and they feed that. And not only is their own life rotting and deteriorating, but all those around them are being affected by that, that sewage of bitterness. Many are being defiled by it. But not Anna. That didn't mean she didn't love her husband or that it felt good or that she didn't grieve and grieve deeply, but she must have decided that day, I'll make God my husband, and I'll serve him the remaining years of my life. And what a long life it was. You see, God was through with her husband at that point, but he wasn't through with Anna. He had something on his calendar that Anna had prayed about and hoped for. Perhaps she prayed as a young girl, I would love to see the Messiah. She probably prayed every day, even so, come, Messiah, come and deliver your people. Come thou long-expected Jesus. And God determined to answer that prayer, but he's, he weaves all of his uh, th threads together. And so at that instant, she'd be able to see the promised one. The wages, the payoff of sin is death. And I'll remind all of us, death is not God's fault, is it? Death is our fault. We choose our own ways, and it is the result of sinfulness. 
The Bible says that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. We have no one to blame but ourselves and thank ourselves for the fact that death stalks the earth, invading every home. No family is exempt. No family, no matter how godly and wonderful they are, will have to go this way to the cemetery at some point, breaking up every marriage and turning this world into one big cemetery. The blame is sin, and we are all sinners. Anna could have easily blamed God, but she would have lost that. And I'll tell you, if she had, she wouldn't be in the story here for us to read today. She wouldn't have been at the temple at that instant to see the Savior being lifted up by Simeon and praised. No, she determined early on, this is hard. This is a bitter pill. This is a hard path. How am I going to, to live this life? And yet, I'll just trust the Lord. He's brought me to this point, and I will trust him, and he'll lead and guide me the rest of the way. She could have decided to turn against God and throw in the towel and say, this is what I get for living for the Lord. I'm not going to church again. I know it never going back. It's all, a, it's all a hypocrisy. It's all just a fairy tale. No. She had every reason, humanly speaking, to respond in any manner of ways. She had not become bitter. If, if, if she had, would have, she would have turned into a sour old lady that no one wanted to be around. But that wasn't Hannah, Anna. She didn't forsake God in her sorrow. In fact, it caused her to seek after him. Do you see the things that God allows in our lives are to draw us to him, to draw us to him like a magnet? Our need, our, our emergency, our situation to draw us to him to worship and prayer and praise. With her husband dead, Anna no doubt had to go to work doing whatever she could to, to make a living. And no doubt at, at harvest time she would have have gone out to the fields and helped reap the harvest, whatever she could to, to make a living, doing hard labor just to, to get by. She would come home to an empty and silent house. Her life, humanly speaking, was very dark. But no doubt Anna had read and heard read one of the scriptures from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, a scripture like Isaiah 45, verse 3, where the Lord says, I will give thee treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by name, am the God of Israel. Do you know that some of those blessings can only come through treasures of darkness and riches hidden in sorrow? Where Paul said, I have learned that his grace is sufficient in my, my weakness, and I rejoice, therefore, in my weakness. Anna learned to do what we all must do, to trust God in the dark. When the dark cloud of adversity is looming low, when all human hope is, is gone, there's no help from anyone that we know that can help us except the strong arm of God. And we go to the secret place and cry out before him, Lord, do what you will. She would pray, Lord, I don't know how, why you took my beloved husband from me. I'm sure she prayed that. But I trust you anyway. You promised to be the friend of the widow. Their, their promises, specific promises that God makes to the orphan and the widow throughout the scripture. Lord, I need you to be my friend. And so Anna entered into victory. Victory is not necessarily something you see. We think of crossing a finish line or having the crown or the award. But victory is a stake for the child of God. We live in victory. We fight from victory. Oh, but there are many battles, Pastor. Yes. The flesh must be mortified every day, but we're fighting from victory. You're no longer under the slaves of sin. You, you're sin set free by the work of Christ at Calvary. Now, in this flesh dwelleth no good thing, 
But in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I can come to him for, for everything that I need. She, instead of being bitter, she entered into the treasures of darkness. Have you learned about the treasures of darkness? And she decided that she would make God's house her house. I'm not sure where she lived or who she lived with. Maybe she had to, no place to live after her husband's death. I'm not sure what her circumstances were. But we know that the Bible says that she came to God's house. She departed not from the temple and came there night and day. Now, the temple courts in Anna's day were absolutely elaborate. They had been enlarged by Herod. And the outer court, as rebuilt and extended by Herod, did not form a part of the, the sacred area. The Gentiles were allowed to walk in the outer court. And it was called the court of the Gentiles. Those who had been proselyted into Judaism, those who had adopted Judaism, could go there, but they could go no farther. There, the religious leaders in that court of Gentiles, that's where the money changing went on. That's where people could not use the foreign money to offer, to give, either to give their tithes and offerings at the temple or to buy the sacrifices. They had to change their money into temple money and the, the Jews had be, developed a habit of doing exactly what the publicans did. You know, the publicans were tax collectors from the Roman government, and they made money on the taxes. And so they did in the temple as well. The people had to change their money, and they'd make an exchange rate, uh, an exorbitant rate. That's what had angered our Lord so much. And then the uh, Hebrews were instructed to be, bring the best of their flocks or their turtle doves, or whatever it was they were bringing, and almost invariably they'd bring it in the, the inspector. It's, oh, though, that'll never do. That's not, you'll have to buy one at the temple. And so they had uh, animals there, and they forced by large people to buy their animals, which was another cost. And all that the Lord had intended to point to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ had been corrupted and made vile. And that's why he overturned the money changers' uh, tables in the outer court of the Gentiles. And there, that's where the, that business went on. Anna, when she got there, when she left her abode, wherever it was, perhaps she lived with a relative or with some other, I don't know, made the journey to the outer court. And then she would make her way across this court until she came to some steps. And these vast steps led up to a barrier. This barrier was known as the middle wall of petition. You read about it in the scripture. On the walls written in Greek and in Latin, so that no one could dare mistake it, were signs warning that Gentiles were not to go past this point. The penalty was death. Severe signs warning the death penalty for anyone that was a Gentile if they went past the, the middle wall of partition. Aren't you glad that when he cried out, it is finished? And the veil was rent from the top to the bottom. There's neither Jew nor Gentile nor bond or free nor male nor female. The middle wall of petition has been broken down. But Anna would have seen it. But you know what? Anna, she's 100 years old. She's probably hobbling, wouldn't you think? Maybe has canes that she's come, hobbling on to, to get there. Uh, she would have gone past. There were nine massive gates that led through this barrier. One of these gates was known as the Gate Beautiful because it was made of and overlaid in Corinthian bronze and kept polished like pure gold. And in fact, they said when the sun on the Temple Mount hit that gold, that, that, the Corinthian bronze on that gate, beautiful, it was so blinding that you couldn't, like looking into a mirror, the light hitting into the mirror. 
and she might have gone through the Corinthian gate. Or one of, the, one of those nine gates she would have entered and she would have found herself in the court of women. And in this court, the temple treasury was located, uh, ideally because women could bring money just like men could. And you realize the temple was a, a, a bank as well as anything else. And all the temples in that day, not just the Jewish temples, but the temples because people were thought to be afraid to try to steal anything from a temple. And in fact, in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, the gold and the revenue stolen from the temple, and you know, they set it on fire and burned it. And Jesus said not a stone will be on the other. Uh, they took all of that. They scraped all the gold that was melted in the, in the vast fire, and they got every bit of it. And I was watching a History Channel uh, the other station several years ago. It was about the Colosseum, and it, there was a little blurb that came up that said that it was reported, and this was from the History Channel, not godly people that I know of, that the, that the Colosseum was built from the, the loot of the temple of, of, the, of the Jews when it was destroyed in 70 AD. It's kind of interesting that that facility would be built where God's people were um, killed as far as, far as uh, making fun of in the, the days of the gladiators. But regardless of that, in the, the court of the women was a treasury. And the Jewish men could go farther beyond the court of women to the court of Israel. And that's where all the, the Jewish men could go. Descendants of Aaron could go even farther into the court of the priest. And Anna could, but Anna could only go to the court of the women, and there she went and prayed every day. Now, some people may say, well, Brother Lamb, I can't do very much. I'm of great age. But Anna prayed. Oh, what a, what a job that is. What a ministry that is. Prayers can go where you cannot go. Prayers accompany the, the righteous man, the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And there she made her home away from home. The Holy Spirit tells us in verse 37 here of Luke 2, she departed not from the temple. She had made God her husband, she had made his house her house, and she had entered into the treasures of darkness. She said with Job, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Anna could have become bitter over her family life. She was of the tribe of Asher. And her name reminded her of God's grace. And, and she would have said, might have said, well, there's nothing gracious about my life. There's all kinds of, of things that she could have been bitter about. But she uh, put all that aside behind her. Now, Anna's father must have been a godly man. The Holy Spirit gives us his name here, Fanuel, which means the face of God. What a name. Anna grew up in a home where the, her earthly father was a living image of God to her childish heart and life. And, and you fathers, you are to represent God to your children. You live before them in such a way to point them to their heavenly father, one who can be trusted, one who's honest and, and a man of integrity. She saw God in her father's face, Fanuel, the face of God. She knew what God was like because she knew what her father was like. And so what a wonderful thing that is and what a ministry it is and a responsibility it is to us fathers. Anna could have been bitter over her frailty, her declining health. If she is 100 years old, however she old she is, the Bible says she's a great age. And we saw that Abraham died when he was well stricken in years. 
that sounds that has the same connotation. Great age. I believe she was well over a hundred years old. You don't get to be eighty-four or a hundred and ten without all the problems and the limitations of old age. She may have been very arthritic, had bad circulation. She could have been crippled. She could have used her old age as an excuse not to come to the temple any longer. And I'm in no wise putting light on people's physical situations. I know that there comes a time when people are shut in, but I think we ought to be as active as we can, as long as we can, meeting with God's people. She had learned, I want to be under the spout where the blessings come out. And she knew wherever God's people were gathered, there would be blessings. And she came. Someone, I'm sure, at 100 and something years old, someone said, Anna, why don't you just stay home? Why, why do you go down there every day to the temple? Well, you can see going down there at the sacrifices time, the time when the choir's practicing or something like that, and when they're playing the instruments. But why do you go down there every day like that? You know, you, don't you, you should stay at home. You're so old and decrepit. There you are on your canes going to the temple. Don't you have sense enough to stay at home? And I'm sure that Anna, I don't know what she said back to him. She might not have said anything but smile. But her attitude was, I want to be under the spout where the blessings come out. I'm looking for the Messiah. Well, why, why are you going to the temple? She knew that, that, that the Messiah was going to come at some point. And I want to be where he can find me. I can, and I, I, I can think of no better place to be than, than, than to be in his house. Someone has said this an old phrase, birds of a feather flock together. And God's people flock with, together with each other. They need an encouragement and they need the, the blessings and desire the blessings of the Lord. She could have become bitter over her finances, uh, that, that she was destitute. But the Holy Spirit says, Anna departed not from the temple. The word not is a strong word expressing full and direct negation. It means she absolutely did not depart from the temple. There were no ifs, and and buts in Anna's life. She lived solely for the glory of God. Her whole life revolved around the temple. A verse in Anna's Bible in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 taught her that the Lord would come suddenly in his temple. I want you to listen in Malachi 3 verse 1. You might want to jot that down and refer to it at some other point. He says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. I believe that was Anna's verse. She was looking for the Messiah. Malachi said he would come suddenly in the temple, and that's where she wanted to be. And he's, listen, by the way, he's going to come in the twinkling of an eye, isn't he? When he comes again, it's going to be in, in a very quick happening when the, the Lord Jesus comes about, comes again. She didn't know where else he would come, but she knew one thing, according to Malachi, that he would come to the temple. So she narrowed it down and said, I'll tell you one thing. If I'm looking for the Messiah, I'm bound to find him at the, the house of God. And so the temple was where Anna wanted to be. Anna triumphed over all the excuses people made for not gathering in God's house and seeing about the business of God. Oh, she wasn't infatuated with the temple itself. I mentioned those Corinthian doors and all that just by way of interest. All that marble and gold and silver, that mattered not to, to Anna. She knew the real meaning behind all of it. Some people look at the trappings, the wrappings of something, and they get fixated on that. But we always point to the heart of the matter, the Word of God, the Spirit of Christ. Our, word is, our, our worship is Word-based because that's how God has revealed Himself to us. And while we try to do things neatly and in order and as beautifully as possible, she didn't care about the building. 
That's just where God told them to come. And her presence in the temple was evidence of her victory over bitterness. That we, we see Anna's vocation in verse 37. She served God with fasting and prayers day and night. The word serve means literally she worshipped him. And there's so much more we can say about Anna's worship and serving him. But we want to see lastly, lastly of all Anna's vision. She woke up at the usual time, no doubt, on that day. I don't think she had any premonition on that specific day that she would see the Messiah. She made her small, frugal, I'm sure, breakfast. But she knew her way blindfolded. Even if she had failing eyesight, Anna could have found her way to the court of women if nobody helped her. She could go. She knew every house and barking dog and child and bump in the road and every tree along the way to the temple court. She came to the Temple Mount where she climbed up terrace after terrace until she got to the top. All the way around her was the snowy white marble and the glittering gold. It took her breath away. Finally, she found her corner and began her daily round of prayer. But today was different from all the other days because in that instant, Jesus came. Anna noticed a man and a woman coming, a baby wrapped in a blanket, then she saw an old man approach the couple. Anna knew the old man was Simeon. She passed him every day. She knew Simeon. Everybody knew Simeon. She couldn't help overhearing, though. And there wasn't anything wrong with her hearing. She couldn't help overhearing what Simeon said as he intercepted the couple. And it's amazing that Simeon walked up to this couple. Mary and Joseph were not the only couple who would be going through these rites. But God had told Simeon this was the one. And as he intercepted the couple, taking the baby in his arms, Anna's heart leaped. It was the Lord. It was what she'd waited for her entire life. Her prayers were answered. He'd come. Hallelujah. He was come as a baby. Of course he would. I, didn't Isaiah said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. She knew every believer in town. And the Bible says that she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that look for redemption in Jerusalem. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? The king has come, and he is coming. That's the message of Christmas. Messiah has come, and he's coming again. And we all can do like Anna. We can look for the Lord's coming, and we can tell others about him. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to study these snapshots that you've left for us, portraits of people's lives and how you used and blessed them. Now, may we be like Anna. May we be where you'd have us to be. May we look expectantly for your promises to us to be fulfilled. We ask in Jesus' precious name, amen.